Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, we're going to explore now what it means to be reconciled with you in these coming weeks. Now, Father, as we build off of what we've pondered and reflected upon in these verses prior to this section, we want to once again delve into your word knowing that we are dealing with what's eternal. And we know that if it's not eternal, it's out of date. That the eternal has a way of breaking in, crashing into the temporal of life, revealing yourself to us. So, Father, we want to absorb each and every phrase, each and every word that's found here. Understand what it is and build a bridge from when it was penned to 2018 living. And give us the tools, Father, to do that. So again, the minutes to come, they're yours, not ours. We're not interested in a pastor's opinion. We're interested in what the Bible says. So Father, we're praying now once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So now again, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the next time you're scaling the Andes and you're wondering why there's a statue there of Jesus Christ, there's a story behind it. You see, there was a time when Argentina and Chile had been at war with each other. And then they saw the light. So melting down their cannons, they used the metal to erect a colossal statue of Jesus on the mountain boundary between the two countries. And then underneath the statue is this inscription. Sooner shall these mountains crumble into dust than the peoples of Argentina and Chile break the peace which at the feet of Christ, the Redeemer, they've sworn to maintain. And so there you have it, on, on the lonely peaks in the Andes, the huge statue of Christ stands, and he still stands today. God has a way of reconciling opposing parties. And what you will find as we're exploring now the rest of this fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians is the way in which God has taken the initiative to produce reconciliation. So if you find yourself distanced from God, if you know point blank you are separated from God, what God has done is taken the initiative and he has reconciled you to him not based upon your efforts, but upon Christ's finished work. So what I want to do now, with that picture of Jesus in the Andes in mind, where you have two countries that were separated from one another, but then there is this reconciling statue to remind them 
it's time now to put down the weapons and find peace. What God has done through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is to challenge us to disarm and to recognize the peace that has been secured through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's three motivating factors that I see here in these verses to kick off our understanding as a congregation of what it means to be involved in a ministry of reconciliation in a culture of alienation. The first comes out of verse 11. We're going to put it like this, that in our ministry of reconciliation, I first of all want you to note with me the motivation to know what we'll call the fear of the Lord. Because in verse 11, you and I are told, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, notice that he begins with the word, therefore. By now, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question, what's therefore, therefore, right? Right. Well, last week, what we explored was that in verses 1 through 10, life is fleeting. These bodies are like tents. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul contrasts these earthly bodies, which he likens to tents, to the glorified body, which he likens to a building, you see. And by setting up that contrast, what he reminds us of is that someday, someday we will be standing before Jesus. He builds his arguments till he gets to verse 10. And in verse 10, as we saw last week, we had to embrace this truth. We must all, not some, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you've got to bear in mind in the Bible that there are two different judgments. In the book of Revelation, there is the great white throne judgment. That is the judgment of unbelief. This judgment seat is the judgment seat for belief. It is known in the Greek as the Bema seat. Last week, we put up a scene with some of my family members, we were standing in Corinth in Greece. At the Bema Seat, in Acts 18, described the place where the Apostle Paul stood when he was being put on trial by the Roman tribunal, the Roman judgment seat. What Paul now does is that he builds a bridge and he uses analogies simultaneously and he says, there's a beam of seat still to come when you and I, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, will stand before. It will be not based upon whether or not we are saved. That beam of seat is for those who are saved. So what is the purpose of this judgment seat described in verse 10? The answer that each one may receive, in other words, be recompensed for what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the word evil carries with the idea of that which is superfluous, that which doesn't matter. In other words, when you and I are caught up in pursuing stuff that, eternally speaking, don't matter, that stuff will be stripped away, and what is left at the Bema Seat 
will be recompensed, rewarded. Which means then you and I have got to start asking ourselves at this stage of our lives, what am I pursuing? Am I investing in what matters most? Or am I pursuing things that at the beam of seat simply don't count? How do I manage my time for a beam of seat experience? So now he wants you to ask the question, what's therefore, therefore? He's now got you grappling with the fact that you and I are involved in pursuing what matters most in these tents, these bodies that God has given us for now, knowing that someday we'll stand before him. And then he adds something that perhaps a lot of us want to, by nature, gut reaction, push back against, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now you say, Gary, when I explore the scriptures, I'm drawn to verses such as perfect love casts out fear, and rightly so. And you probably are well aware of various statements throughout the scriptures that talk about do not be afraid. And you apply those, rightly so. But what we've got to do now is to ask, and what is a basis for illegitimate fear versus what is a basis for realistic fear? The Apostle Paul, who really had a Ph.D. in theology, you see, and understood the Scriptures, understood the tracking of the fear of the God teachings from Genesis onwards, and links the fear of God to faith in the promised one of God. The first example of the fear of God is found in Genesis 22, verse 12. Abram has been given the promise of God of an eternal seed. Encompassed in that seed would be the promised one who is still to come from that point, whom you and I know as Jesus Christ. Up on that mount, however, it seems as though the singular means by which that promise will be fulfilled through Isaac is now threatened with the fact that Isaac is about to die. Abraham is going to have to ask himself a critical question. Do I trust, do I believe in the promise of God out of which the promised one of God will come, or do I not? As a matter of fact, in that Hall of Faith, Faith chapter of Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham believed in the resurrection that God could raise from the dead. So now, there is Abraham on this mount, and what fascinates me is that the fear of God and his faith in the promised one of God combine together in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. And the faith validates the legitimate fear. And uh, furthermore, the fear validates the legitimate faith. Now you get into the book of Exodus, and ladies... You admire the midwives, don't you, in the opening chapters. They stood up to the political force of Pharaoh who wanted the baby boys being put to death. And they were not going to have anything to do with it, were they? 
What fascinates us is that the midwives were among those in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, who feared God. And like Abraham, those who feared God are chronicled as part of being in the Hall of Fame of Faith described in Hebrews 11, just as Canton has its football Hall of Fame. Hebrews 11 has God's Hall of Fame of Faith. You get to Deuteronomy, and the fear of God becomes the focal point of concern. Chapter 4, verse 10. And there you and I are informed that one has to learn how to fear Yahweh, and that that is an educational tool that people have got to use in family life to equip the next generation of living for God, because you get to the point where you continue to march through your scriptures, and in Proverbs chapter 1, building off of all those examples, Solomon would then say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then to bookend that, he would write in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments. So here now you see the connection, the healthy connection, the biblical connection, the fear of God and faith in the promised one of God. And it takes me back to what G.K. Chesterton had once said. We fear man so much because we fear God so little. But one fear cures another. And I apply that in what you see in the first half of verse 11 to what Festo Kivangara described in 1973 where February 10th began as a sad day for us in Kabbalah. People were commanded to come to the stadium to witness the execution. Death permeated the atmosphere. Silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two of my fellow pastors were with me. And they brought the men in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood at attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you share the good news of Jesus Christ to doomed men who are probably seething with rage? We approached them from behind. As they turned to look at us, what a sight. Their faces were alight with an unmistakable glow and radiance. And before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Pastor, thank you for coming. I want to tell you, the day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. He came in, forgave me of all my sins. Heaven's now open. There's nothing between me and my God. Think reconciliation. 
Please tell my wife and children I am going to be with Jesus. Ask them to accept him into their lives as I did. The other two told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs, and I felt that what I then needed to do was to talk to the soldiers, not to the condemned. So I translated what the men had said into a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. And they were so dumbfounded that they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. So the three faced the firing squad, standing close together. They looked toward the crowd and began to wave handcuffs and all. And the people waved back. And the men shouted praise to God. And the people began to applaud. And then the shots were fired and the three were with Jesus. And we stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing, with joy mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, the men live. There was an upsurge of life in Christ, which challenges death and defeats it. And so, and so the next Sunday, as I was speaking to a crowd in the hometown of one of the executed men, though we could feel... The death, the feel of death over the congregation, it was being overcome by the feel of life. And when I gave them the testimony of this man and how he died, there erupted a great song of praise to Jesus. For you see, they feared men so little because they feared God so much and their faith in Jesus, was known, and many, as a result, turned to Jesus. You see the connections in all this? You see the wisdom in all this? You see the courage in all this? You need courage this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that's how far we're so far in this message. We're up to that part. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now that word fascinates me as well. Because it was a word that was used in Greek in that Greece in that time period. Where Greek philosophers, particularly the Athenian philosophers, would seek to argue their points with one another and sway the crowds intellectually. That's the word that Paul is now using here. But he's not basing it upon his own philosophical tendencies, but rather the fear of the Lord is having stood at the ultimate beam of seat, that of Christ in his mind of what's still to come. He's saying, here's my motivation. I want to persuade others, you see. Now, do you lead a life that's persuasive? where you have such a sense of God's presence, such a sense of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're leading a compelling life that persuades, not only verbally, but visually as well, where we persuade others. In Athens, in Greece, 
as described in Acts 17, before Paul made his way to Corinth in Acts 18. They were known for their teachings in the area of what is known as rhetoric, still taught in some universities today. There were three essential parts to rhetoric. One is known as logos. The second, ethos. The third, pathos. Paul takes this now and applies it to what he's doing. Logos, the word of God. Ethos, the way he lives before God. Pathos, that sense of the inner compulsion, feeling that comes with, overwhelms us to live this persuasive life, verbally as well as visually. Like those men in Uganda, it's persuasive. We persuade others. But then now, you're to the second part of verse 11. And he establishes before them that he has lived his life authentically among them. But what we are is known to God, not merely known to you. It's known to God. And I hope also to your conscience, because as he's about to establish, his credibility is under attack. And what do you do in a congregation where a believer's credibility is under attack and that believer loves Jesus? Well, that leads us to this second point. That in our ministry of reconciliation, you not only notice and note with me the motivation to know the fear of the Lord in verse 11, but secondly, to protect the integrity of the church and the people of the church in verses 12 and 13. Now, come fall, and you're watching the Packers play. You're going to be watching very carefully the offensive line, particularly the left tackle, who is responsible for the blind side of Aaron Rodgers, you see. And as long as he stays in the pocket, and you know Roger's skills of going out of the pocket, they have the responsibility then of being his protectors. Now what is being established in these verses is that the congregation, the individuals of the congregation are to be one another's protector. We're to be the offensive line for one another when it seems as though we are under attack. Let's build it further, shift gears. So often in the press, the press can't distinguish, biblically speaking, between the message and the messenger. And when a believer is discredited, the assumption is the message is discredited. Christians know, however, that the true basis for ministry is in the ultimate messenger, Jesus Christ, whom you cannot discredit, you see. So we are, we are here to share the ministry of reconciliation to the authentic one, for the authentic one, by the authentic one, Jesus, but Paul finds that his, that his opponents have appeared on the scene in Corinth, and they're attacking him. And he knows out in the secular culture of Corinth 
that the culture can't distinguish between the attack on the messenger and the attack on the message. Therefore, if the messenger goes down, the message goes down. He's concerned about that, so he's going to have to defend himself. But he's going to need the believers in Corinth to defend him. Which means that in this congregation of this size of multiple services, we are to be the offensive line, back to the football analogy, defending one another in a fallen culture. Which can't distinguish between the message and the messengers of this world. So when he says we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, He's saying to defend us against those who would attack us and argue that salvation is not on the basis of God's grace, but on the basis of your works. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. In other words, those who are religious but unsaved. And those who place tremendous emphasis upon religious externals but have never experienced the authenticity of the true internal dynamic of God at work within one's heart. Or to put it this way, using Henry Wingblade's illustration, where he found himself at a restaurant in a particular country in Europe. The depths of Christianity, so often unseen, like the soup carried in a terrine high over a waiter's head. No one knows what's inside unless the waiter is bumped and he trips. Now some of us have been bumped. Some of us have gotten tripped. What fascinates us, people don't know what's inside us until we've been bumped. And we've had to address matters of loss. We've had to address matters of pain. We've had to address matters of disappointment. And something from the inside gets spilled out on the aisles of the restaurants of this world. And then people say, ah, so that's what's inside you. I never knew until you got bumped. I never knew until you got hurt. And now I get it. Now I understand what's inside of you. See, it's not merely what makes you tick. It's who makes you tick. Jesus makes Paul tick so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And so in verse 13, he's saying to these people that have examined him as he spent 18 months in Corinth teaching God's word. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, and if we are in our right minds, it's for you. And you say, well, Gary, what's that all about? We see his attackers were saying that Paul's out of his mind. This is irrational, what he's speaking about. Damascus Road experience, talking about salvation by grace rather than in the human efforts of religious observances and so on and so forth. But what interests me is that that word that's described here in verse 13 to be beside oneself, 
is the very same word which was used by Jesus' family, where in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Out of his mind. And so what we find here is that Christianity is super-rational, not anti-rational. It is what Francis Schaeffer described as upper-level reasoning, not lower-level reasoning, which is able and equips us then to do exactly what the Apostle Paul was capable of doing with reason and skill and intellect in Acts chapter 16 of verse 24, when Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But the Apostle Paul was steeped in God's word, you see, and understood how in the intersection of truth with life. And so what we do now is that we are motivated in this ministry of reconciliation to begin by knowing the fear of the Lord in verse 11, and then second of all, protecting the integrity of the church in verses 12 and 13, understanding the significance that not always will people be able to see the sum total of who you are in relationship with God. So we are each other's defenders. In a New York magazine several years back, the writer said, I saw a picture of the Statue of Liberty taken from a helicopter. And it showed the top of the statue's head. And I was amazed at the detail there. The sculptor had done a painstaking job with the lady's coffee, and yet he must have been pretty sure that the only eyes that would have ever seen this detail would be the uncritical eyes of seagulls. He could not have dreamt that any man or woman would ever fly over this head. But he had enough integrity, however, to finish off this part of the statue with as much care as he had devoted to her face, her arms, the torch, and everything that people can see as they sail up the bay. For you see, when you are creating a work of art, or shaping a life, or living a life, finish the job. You never know when a helicopter or some other instrument not at the moment invented, may come along and find you out. Integrity. And so we live our lives with integrity. And then, like Aaron Rodgers' offensive line, we become the protectors, the defenders, the left tackles and right tackles, left guards, right guards, center, protecting the church, the message and the messenger, which the culture would not fully understand. This needs to be maintained. Protect the integrity of the church. And then there's a third motivating factor. Share the controlling love of Christ. It appears on the screen. Look now very carefully at verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. 
when you want to communicate effectively, maybe it's extended family, of the significance of reconciliation. And maybe you have loved ones that are, for the lack of a better word, estranged from one another. And you're looking for insight into the realm of reconciliation. Each and every of these points over these three Sundays, today and the next two, relate. But now look very carefully at the wording here. For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations, constrains us. A critical word, the love of Christ that controls us. It constrains us. And so I couple that with what I was studying about this particular word. And what struck me was that it's the very same word used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh more necessary on your account. I'm hard-pressed. Now, what God has done is that he's brought this constraining, compelling, controlling love, and he has he's compressed you. He's constrained you. You are hemmed in on all sides by his love, an agape love, a sacrificial love. For Jesus died in your place, my place, for your sins, my sins. It was used to describe a narrow road in Greek culture where you felt as though the buildings were, were rubbing your shoulders on both the left side and the right side of you. That kind of controlling love. But now notice what comes next. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now the great teaching of substitution. And he died for all. And you ask him, what's the purpose? And here's Paul's answer that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for us. In that great book, The Cross of Christ, Dr. John Stott penned these thoughts. It's brilliant. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Pause. Think the Genesis account when Satan tempted Eve. You'll be like God. The essence of sin is a man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Think the cross of Christ. What do they share in common? Substitution. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. 
God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And our minds go back to 1946. Los Alamos. A young and daring scientist carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific at Bikini. Some must know the story. He had successfully performed such an experiment many times before. In his effort to determine the amount of U-235 necessary for a chain reaction, what scientists call the critical mass, he would push two hemispheres of uranium together. And then, just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with a screwdriver, but thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped. The hemispheres of uranium came too close together. Instantly, the room was filled with a dazzling blue haze. The young scientist, Louis Slotin, instead of ducking, possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands, interrupting the chain reaction. The writer tells us, by this instant, self-forgetful daring, he saved the lives of the other scientists in the room. And as he waited for the car that was to take him to the hospital, he said quietly to those that had gathered around him, you'll live, but I will die. True. Nine days later, he passed away. But then we pen these thoughts to add to that. The Son of the living God walked directly into sin's most concentrated radiation, allowing himself to be touched by its curse and let it take his life. But that act, and by that act, he broke the chain reaction. He broke the power of sin when he paid the penalty for sin. And what validates that? What validates that is the end of verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Now we've got the responsibility of reconciliation, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so there you have it. There's that statue in the Andes. There's two warring parties. When all of a sudden you've made your way to that point where the boundaries touch and the statue is found. Sooner shall these mountains crumble into dust 
Then the peoples of Argentina and Chile break the peace, which at the feet of Christ, the Redeemer, they've sworn to maintain. The statue stands, and Jesus always will. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we're beginning now, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, to understand the depths of reconciliation described in this powerful chapter. And so, if anyone in any of these services comes here today alienated from you, separated from you. I pray now that they will put faith and trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation. Repent of sin. Put faith in the finished work of the one who died in our place, our substitute. No longer substituting self for you, but seeing that you have sent the substitute for us and live for him. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.